Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There is a story for everyone here because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. I personally love underdog stories, the ones where you think aren't going to win and turns out they end up winning. It's like they're least likely to get anywhere. They're least qualified. They're the ones that you wouldn't even think are going to go anywhere at all. My guest today is Gil Winch, who has a PhD. Now, For those of you that need to know more about Gil, he is quite, quite the person. Uh, Honestly, I really, really enjoyed uh, my conversation with Gil because there's so much that we touch on in, in terms of the idea of winning in the workplace, especially, but uh, how we can help marginalized groups, people with disabilities, ex-convicts, senior citizens, and the shy, the anxious, uh, various minorities, the ones that are unrepresented, right? How can we help them find not only a place in just the workplace, but also in society as a whole? So Gil Winch is an organizational consultant and keynote speaker with 30 years of experience working with some of Israel's largest organizations. He has also served as a personal consultant to CEOs and leaders of large organizations, such as the Israeli National Chief of Police. After learning about the extreme worldwide unemployment of people with severe disabilities, he began researching and developing a unique marginal model that enabled people with severe disabilities to achieve regular productivity in free market businesses for regular market wages. And he also wrote a brilliant book called Winning with Underdogs, how hiring the least likely candidates can spark creativity, improve service and boost profits for your business. You can get a copy of that. Uh, The links for it will be in the show notes below. So once again, this was a really, really enjoyable conversation and Gil shares some 
wild stories of people that do have severe disabilities, like a blind person, for example, and how he's been able to integrate that person in the workplace so they feel connected and part of something in not just the workplace but in their own life as well. So this was a real, real treat. I know that you guys are going to love it and get uh, so much from it too. So uh, my friends, you can get a copy of the book. Links will be in the show notes below too as well. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than Gil Winch. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you for having me. Pleasure now, to be here. It's great to have you here. Now, I've got to apologize on the show because <laughs> we've been trying to make this happen for a while and uh, my unprofessional nature of rescheduling everything, there's a lot going on currently in my life, but I won't use that as an excuse. But I appreciate your patience, my friend. How are you doing? How are things in, in your neck of the woods? I believe you're in Israel. Yeah, I'm I'm really good, Jay. There's no need um, to apologize. Even though I was born Jewish, I'm not really strong on the guilt thing. So uh, we're good. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, uh, I was born in England, but I live in Israel. Uh, I've lived in Israel for most of my life. And, um, and my company is in Israel, even though I do see myself sort of as a citizen of the world. And I'm, I'm here to help underdogs. And I don't really care where they live or what the religions or politics are or color or preferences. I'm just, I just think underdogs, this is the era. So, uh, I'm, I'm here to promote that really. Well, I love that message and I feel like it is a message that needs more promotion. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of underdogs out there and people that don't actually know they're underdogs. We'll get to that in just a moment, but you grew up in England, right? Or you yeah. were born in England. How long you were there for before you moved to Israel? Probably to when I was eight, around that, eight so years what, old. Yeah. What was your childhood like up until the age of eight? Can you remember most of it? I remember very little of it. Um, there, there's a funny thing that we don't haven't really noticed, and I think the the generation gap does notice. I have very few pictures, zero videos of my youth because it wasn't that abundant back then. Videos, not at all. So, you know, with my kids growing up, their videos of of everything of uh, of their you know uh, from, from being very very young children, and then you can look back and cement it, and and it becomes a sort of a memory. When you have very few pictures, things sort of get fuzzy along the way. I don't really have much recollection of those years at all. Do you have? Um, and it was England. England is like up, school, back, homework, sleep. Not really much going on for kids in England until a certain age, I think. So how come you guys decided to move to Israel? Was it a family decision? Well, nobody really asked us. Um, our parents moved and at some point they left and I stayed um, in Israel. And then I believe your brother Guy is in the US, is that right? Right. I have an identical twin. Uh, we're both psychologists. Uh, he's called Guy. Uh, we're, we're the best of friends. And he's been living in the U.S. for the past 35, 40 years, pretty much. So what's it? tell me what's it like growing up as a twin? <laughs> I'm always curious about this. I guess various twins have various experiences, but for us, it was just amazing. It was just positive. We 
Um, I know brothers fight. We never fought. We never raised a hand to each other. We never felt the need or the urge when we would um, we, we were told by our parents that when we would come back from a certain place and they would say, how was it? And we would look at each other and unless both of us enjoyed it, we wouldn't give a, it was a good sort of thing report because it had to be that both of us are, are enjoying it. And I think, and we don't even, um, we don't even do the envy thing that many brothers do. We, we, we look at it differently. And I think we always have, I don't think anybody told us to, but basically, we're identical twins, i.e. we have the same genetics. What my brother can do genetically, I can do, which saves an awful lot of time. Because if he did something now, I'm so, I am so I don't have to do it. I know it's in our wheelhouse. I can do something else to prove it's in our wheelhouse. So we have sort of this thing that whatever each of us does, we share. So if... Uh, if uh, if I uh, did something in, in, in the sports realm four times, so it's two each. He doesn't have to do it. He can. We know this. We can just move in. So it just saves all the envy and you focus on, you know, uh, enlarging the envelopes of the thing. And you both do the same thing. Technically speaking, you're both psychologists. And did you ever play tricks on your your lecturers at all? Like. Well, we we studied. We both studied um, for the our BA in uh, in uh, Israel, but the rest of it I I did here, and my brother did in New York and NYU. Um, and he started studying a year before me um, um, for various irrelevant reasons. So there was only once that a lecturer looked at me and said, "Why why are you doing this course again?" Mm-hmm. Um, but but that that was the only that was the only time when my brother is an amazing clinical psychologist and I am not I uh, I studied clinical psychology but I'm an organizational psychologist that's much more up my alley um, of of creating change and getting people to find a better place and and less helping them deal with the place they're in. So that is the main difference, right? So you're helping people in... I'm working with organizations, basically, and my brother's working with individuals. Okay. Why did you want to do that and not be a clinical psychologist? I don't have the temperament for clinical psychology, to be truthful. I I can hear people complain, but very, very quickly, I want to move over to action items of stopping the suffering. And I don't have, the, I don't think I have the right temperament or patience to really spend the amount of time patients need with their problems and not try to move them on to the next step. So I think um, I did it for about a year. And as I say, with the encouragement of my patients, <laughs> I decided I should probably, uh, you know, look for something a bit more suited to my temperament. Um, and organizational uh, psychology is, is very suited to my temperament and it's it's very diverse and you keep on meeting and learning and new staff and new companies and new people, which makes it interesting. But after 20 years of that, I started doing the underdog thing. I started, um, a, a guy in the street I met told me that severely disabled people, and he was amongst them, are out of work worldwide. Wow. And when he told me that, it really makes sense. They're severely disabled, so they can't work. So where's the news here? But it sort of stuck to me. And when I went home, I thought about it a bit. And I, I, it was, it was 2001. There was internet. It wasn't good internet, but there was internet. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, yeah, and and um, and um, I I try to see who are these severely disabled individuals that are globally unemployed, and when I started looking at who they are, it made no sense whatsoever. For instance, why are people in wheelchairs who are considered severely disabled unemployed? I mean, the rest of their capabilities are totally totally normal. So if a few of them are unemployed, a bit more than regular, you could understand. But the, the, fast, the vast majority of them are out of work. Doesn't seem like there's a good reason for it. And, and in the modern world, most buildings are accessible. Yeah. So it couldn't be that. Um, 80%, I think, worldwide of the people around 80% of the people who are considered legally blind in the world have enough sight left to function on a computer. Wow. So why are, why are they out of a job? If you think about it, nearly all of them, if they can function on a computer. And then I said to myself, well, what do all these unemployed, severely disabled people do at home? They do screens and telephones. Mm-hmm. And what do most of us do at work? We do screens and telephones. So there doesn't seem to be a good reason, or at least it doesn't seem to have anything to do with their actual disabilities. And the minute that occurred to me, because we're not doing the industrial revolution anymore, right? It's not the coal mines or agriculture. You can work if you're physically or emotionally or even mentally uh, emotionally disabled, because most of them are compliant on their medication and you wouldn't know. So I realized once, I realized that apparently the worldwide, and it is a worldwide phenomena, phenomena, severely disabled people are severely out of a job. Disabled people are also severely out of a job, and there are other underdog groups that for no good reason are out of a job. And I thought that um, if it's not because of their disabilities, maybe it's solvable. Yeah. So I started looking into it. And the minute I started looking into it, um, things sort of started to, to, to happen and and I started to get more and more uh, engaged with the whole thing because I started to get pissed off <laughs> because I started to no I started to realize that what we as a global society have done is we have taken the weakest amongst us at least medically the weakest amongst us yep. and we have imposed upon them two horrific calamities we have made them, the poorest of the poor, at least in Israel, and I'm pretty, I, I, by this time I know what's going on in most of the world, uh, um, disability pensions are always below minimum wage unless you're Swiss. Yeah. So if you can barely make it with the minimum wage, or sometimes you cannot, you cannot make it with with a disability pension. So we've taken the, the, the weakest amongst us medically, we've made them the poorest amongst us as well, and then we've totally isolated them socially, which maybe is is even the biggest of all three calamities. And that that can't be fair. I mean, societies really should be measured by how strong their weakest link is, not how weak they make their weakest link. And we've made our weakest link or one of our weak links so much weaker. And it's not only people with disabilities. There are other large groups that are generally unemployed everywhere with no good reason. And it's horrific for them. It's also horrific for their families and the communities. And it's horrific for the economy because any economy where everybody participates is a stronger economy. And we have uh, people with disabilities, just that group is like 10 to 15 to 25% of the world. There's a lot of uh, misunderstanding and mix up with statistics, which I could clarify later on. But basically it's 10 to 15% of the world of our brothers and sisters and 
80% of them, 70% of them, sometimes 90% of them, not amongst us. Yeah. Secluded in their homes, isolated, miserable and poor. And it's it's so not fair. I, I also realize that 80% of the world acquires their disability. They're not born with it. Um, so this is really everybody's problem because you all have a chance. We all have a chance to join that group at some point, yeah. even if it's not uh, uh, for a long period of time, but we all have that chance. Most of us will actually be temporarily disabled at some point in life. So I found that I, I want to look into it and I want to see if I can fix it. And, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm from a little country, um, not very popular one. And yet um, this is a worldwide problem. And these these populations are the brothers and sisters of everyone. So I really thought it should interest and be relevant to everyone. And that's how it got started. I've got a pretty decent sized history with, in my background, with um, filmmaking and, and making films for this um, organization, Focus on Ability, uh, which pretty much highlights people that have a disability but it more focuses towards the fact that they do have more abilities than we give them credit for most of the mm -hmm. time. So it's highlighting yeah. that. And I also ended up working on or working for people with a disability. And that was one of the, the <laughs> one of the best times of my life. I, I can honestly say that without a shadow of a doubt, because these people, they are people and they have tremendous abilities, but society has segregated them. You're right and made it like that they can't work, they can't do X, Y, and Z. But what I saw was these individuals, these actual people that had vast amounts of ability to do a certain job. And some of them, when I was working with them, they actually had separate jobs, like they could go to work and they would spend time at work uh, doing things. So they were earning their own income. They had their sort of autonomy. And all I would do would just be there to kind of like be a support in a way. But I, I just, I don't, I didn't like growing up when I saw other people, belittle others that were so-called different in quotation marks, right? Like it's not fair or right at all. So that's really the, my history behind it. So I love what you're doing with your, your company, as well as the message of the underdog pretty much, because it, it does need to change. And these people, which are people, I'll say it again, they need to feel like they belong in society. Well, they are, they're a part of society. We are the ones that are creating their feeling of, of, of not belonging. Yeah. Um, but I want to tell you something interesting I found out. I, I, what I started to do is I started interviewing people with, with basically severe disabilities to find out why they're actually out of work. Now, governments generally globally operate upon these assumptions. If there's someone with a disability out of work, they might lack an accommodation, an adjustment they need. They might need a ramp or software. Some will provide that. Yeah. And if they don't need that or we provided that, most don't need it, um, then they might lack opportunity. So we'll provide opportunity. But once we've provided opportunities and the various adjustments if needed, and they are still out of work, then they obviously lack ability. So next is, is the world uh, general thinking regarding this population. And I, I thought, I, I can't be right. 
Uh, I want to find out what the real reasons they're they're unemployed for. And so I started, this is like more than 20 years ago, I started interviewing people with severe disabilities. I was hoping to interview employers. It was rough coming up with uh, employers. Um, actually, the only employers I found were parents who had a business and a disabled kid, which was uh, who was working in the business. And the amazing thing there was they were all doing amazingly well when they were working for their parents. They were doing objectively amazingly well. Not their parents were saying they were objectively doing amazingly well. So I started interviewing and I started mapping the various reasons I heard. And I surmised that those are the real reasons they're out of a job. Yeah. And the number of people I interviewed slowly grew and my map grew. But at the end of the day, and I'll move forward 20 years, we've interviewed more than 15,000 people by now. So the, this is a really, really robust finding, which basically um, no one knows about. That's why I wrote the book, because the knowledge needs to get out there. But there are three main reasons, people, surprising reasons, that people with disabilities are out of a job, and it's not what governments think. They are different reasons. They are all solvable. Um, and I built CY in order to prove that they're solvable. And I built a business after I put together, after I understood the reasons and I put together an operating model, which took me a few years to come up with. Some of them are complex. Um, I thought that if I opened a for-profit, staffed, managed by severely disabled people who had never worked before, and we'll survive in like a cutthroat industry like call centers and I, I did call centers because then you can prove regular productivity. No one will argue. There are always other teams doing the same thing. You can just show people. Um, I thought I could change the world and show people that 15% of our brothers and sisters are sitting at home, not because they lack ability, because we lack understanding what they need in order to bring that ability to bear. And, and that's how things started out. Are there any um, specific challenges that you face, like dealing with, People that have obvious ability, but also a disability? Well, um, funnily enough, all the challenges we faced were the unexpected ones. There were uh, bureaucracy and government. <laughs> um, those were all the challenges, and they were very severe challenges because um, we were, were not a foundation. We're a business. We're a social business, a real social business insofar as nobody earns high wages. We don't do dividends. Nobody in the company can earn more than five times the lowest earning person in the company, which isn't that much. So if management wants to earn more, everybody needs to earn more. It's a real social business, but it's a for-profit. So we don't fall into any box you can tick off. So the whole government aid and support was not really happening for us. But we were having an amazing time with, with people with disabilities themselves because we were treating them as people just totally normally. And um, what we realize and what apparently happens is that if I'm in a wheelchair, I'm Gil in a wheelchair. So anywhere I would work, I would be Gil, Gil in the wheelchair. But at CY, I'm just Gil because there are other people in wheelchairs. They'll even say, which Gil? And then they'll say the guy born in England or the other, or, right? But um, but I'm I don't stand out in any kind of way. Not because everybody's in wheelchairs; they really aren't that much. And the funny thing about disabilities is most of them you can't see. You can't see the most blind people. That you can see wheelchairs, you can see walkers, and you can see 
uh, um, people who've lost limbs, but basically that's that's all you see. And people coming to our call center used to say, where are all the disabled people here? And I, I would say, there they are, but mm. you can't see it. And which is a good thing. So, so, um, so we we started out um, with a very diverse group of people. Uh, very, we didn't care what the disability was; we just cared what the abilities were. But that needed an awful lot of work before building a model, because people who haven't worked before, and it doesn't matter what group they belong to, become so apprehensive and timid and insecure over time because nobody wants them, and you know, day after day, naturally the rejection is horrific. So they don't pass regular screening because they're so insecure that it totally, totally, totally clouds their true potential. So people say, I would hire people with disabilities. I just can't find any people who fit my needs. And I say, oh, you probably have. You just haven't seen them. You need to screen differently. And then you need to onboard differently. And then you need to manage them differently because a lot of them have social trauma because of the rejection of years not being part of us. And you need to take, and, and it's confusing because this guy's in a wheelchair. Why does he have emotional problems? Well, because he's been at home for 10 years and nobody wanted him. So that'll do wonders for most people. And those are the challenges we dealt with happily. And we, we keep on tweaking our model. We're tweaking it today. Um, but I felt after quite a few years that I need to get that knowledge out because nobody will really succeed employing People with disabilities and other groups, unless they know what we've learned during these years. And that's the main reason I wrote Winning with Underdogs to get our playbook out there. Why, firstly, what is an underdog? What constitutes someone being an underdog? And secondly, mm -hmm. why do you love underdogs? Um, we'll, we'll start with the first. An underdog is anybody who's considered less likely to win. That's the original term from, from boxing in America. The underdog is the person less likely to win um, for any reason, by the way. Uh, his record, his size, not a level playing field, whatever. So they're underdogs. Now, lots of underdogs have no idea that they're underdogs. And the funny thing is, most of the world are underdogs. And I'll just prove it, at least at the workplace, I'll prove it easily. The gender, uh, gender wage parity globally is about 34%. That means women doing the same job as a man will earn 66 uh, uh, cents, pennies, uh, dollars to, to, to the 100 that a man does, which is so unfair if you're a female. Think, I mean, in America, it's lower, but an average American woman will lose about half a million dollars because of that wage parity. That means you're an underdog when you go to one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You have to work harder to get to the same place, yeah. right? People of color in America have to send in twice, twice as many resumes to get the same amount of interviews. Know it or not, they are underdogs. If you are different in any kind of way from mainstream, you have to work harder to get to the same place. I mean, even interviewers in screening, if you don't make eye contact because you are a bit... Uh, uh, on the on, on the spectrum, or uh, you're you're a bit shy or timid, or you have a sore in your eye, or any kind of reason, sixty percent of you will think that you're unfit for the job. It's really really difficult to not be mainstream. And underdogs are anybody who is not knowing it or not. Some people don't believe they're underdogs; they don't feel like underdogs. It doesn't matter. They need to work harder to get to the same place. So they are. It's not a bad thing being an underdog. I think it's what keeps the world interesting. As a boy, and I, 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 you might, you might just agree with me on this one. When there was sports on TV, I was always excited about the weaker team winning because yeah. if the preferred team wins, there's no surprise, there's no challenge, it's a bit mundane. But if the weaker team wins, I would always root for them because then it gets interesting, right? Um, I always found myself rooting for underdogs in school, um, um, and I never considered myself. Uh, um, an underdog, even though by various criteria, I could be, I could be considered an underdog. I never felt like an underdog. I just felt like the person who needs to protect underdogs, all five foot eight of me, um, w- which could get interesting in school sometimes. But um, and, and yet, um, I was always attracted to, believed in, and thought that's a much a way more fun group than uh, than others than the mainstream ones. That's like me. When growing up, I would always, I'm not a betting man, but I would always bet on the sort of like the lesser team, <laughs> the one that didn't look like they were going to win or had the worst record because sometimes it, it, it surprised me. Like, and I love that surprise. And I think I, I can, when I was watching, especially sports teams or whoever it was, um, and I would relate it to my own life. I would be like, well, I'm not very tall. I'm not very big at all, but I've got heart. And these people have heart too. So that's going to make me inspire to be like them or, or motivate me to to be just like them as well. And uh, I, yeah, so I, I, I think you hit it on the head exactly. The, it's to see personality shine. And the underdogs need to have their personality shine to overcome their deficit, whatever it is. Yeah. Whatever made them, deemed them an underdog, now they have to overcome something. And then you get to see people's personality shine. And that's what all, that's always what inspired me. I think you're totally right on that one. Do you have a personal favorite underdog story? Working where I work. I mean, I have, seriously... I don't understand how Netflix hasn't made a series about us yet because the stories, no, the true lives. I'll, I'll give you an example. I'll just two short examples, right? 
this guy uh, is now close to 40, but he was born um, obviously disabled, but he's like a bit of like Quasimodo, he's hunchback, he's nearly totally blind, he can't hear well. So he was immediately abandoned as a child outside of the hospital, and he grew up in foster homes. He never knew who his parents, doesn't know who his parents are, never met them, and foster homes can be rough. So lots of people do it just, you know, for the money. So, and he's legally blind, he's legally deaf, and he was considered slow because nobody realized he's also deaf. He only got legally deaf later. So he was considered slow, even though he's really smart. He speaks two languages, speaks fluent English, because as he says, I was beat up in English as well. So I, I speak fluent English. And, um, and he was in this home for slow people at the age of 20, rotting away. Um, very severe uh, um, uh, behavioral problems with no family and no one ever. It's difficult to imagine what it's like when no one's ever loved you in this world. You're everyone's job, but no one's ever loved you for who you are. Your 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 people who take care of you, they change. You're a job and you're never loved. And I, I can't even imagine growing up with a twin. I can't even imagine what that feels like. And he came to work for us not 15 years ago when he was 20-something. And, um, you know, there are lot, Jews have a lot of holidays. Hell of a lot of holidays. And holidays come around, this guy's alone. And holidays are very family-oriented. This guy is alone. And since he's joined the company, he's not spent one holiday alone. He's either, he's with someone in the company. Um, by, uh, by our management at first, and with no intervention from our part, later on, he calls me dad. He calls my wife, mom. He gets a hug every morning. He's got a CI dog. Uh, um, who and he's also epileptic. So imagine when he gets a seizure, he's out, and an ambulance comes in the street and takes him to hospital. Not the dog though. Now he's a CI dog. They don't allow them into the hospitals. Now the dog is left in the street. He's got no family. What happens? So there's a phone number. He calls our lioness, a lioness, uh, in a very short word, is 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 an HR function we invented in order to take care of situations like this when our employees need help outside of work in order to function at work. And she'll take care of the dog. She'll uh, uh, get special uh, um, uh, uh, permits to get the dog into hospital and stuff like that. But So his life, as you can imagine, has totally, totally, totally transformed since coming to work with us, he's got friends. Uh, he now lives with a group of friends in, in, a, in a protected place, but with a group of friends. People realize he's actually quite intelligent, so he's not with people who, who he can't really converse with anymore. And that's a nice feel-good story um, until uh, the building he was living in started having problems with their maintenance and they they had to take away the stairs and they left a note. He didn't see it and he couldn't come home one day. So again, the lioness had to find a place for him to live. Um, and that would be just one guy who comes in and we have totally transformed his life. Uh, another one shortly, and this is, uh, if there are any listeners who don't do well with tough stories, this would be a good time to make some tea. Um, you know, because they're all true stories. This woman uh, grew up with uh, nine brothers. Mom died from cancer. She immediately was taken out of school at the age of 12 to cook and provide and clean for the family. 
Um, and she immediately started getting raped by a couple of her brothers, who at the age of 17 married her off to one of the friends who also raped her. And she had two kids uh, by the age of 21. But at the age of 23 or 4, she was beaten up so badly by the husband all the time that welfare uh, intervened, took the kids because nobody was actually taking care of the kids, took the husband to prison, and she spent the next 30 years, 40 years on the streets with alcohol and prostitution because she has no life, no kids. She didn't understand what had happened. She couldn't take care of herself, immediately found herself on the streets. 35 years later, um, the car, a car turns up to where she was working with a couple inside. It happened every now and then. She was 56 or seven at the time. She got into the car and as far as she concerned, she was abducted. This couple, 35, 40 year old couple, drove her out of town. She started screaming. She realized she's getting abducted. She was afraid they're going to kill her. And she started screaming, let me off. I want to go back, let me off. And at some point the woman turns around and said, mom, Everything would be okay. It was a boy and daughter who were adopted in the same house, grew up really well, and decided at some age that they're going to open their adoption papers and go and look for their mom. They found her, abducted her, took her off the streets, helped her dry up. This is a woman who's never seen a computer, who's never lived under a roof since the age of 20 of 20-something, who's never been to school since the age of 12, um, and they brought her to work for us. And she said, why you take me to work somewhere? I can't do anything. I'm a prostitute. And they said, no, no, mommy, you can. And speaking to this woman immediately, you realize how smart and, and amazingly intelligent she is. And to cut a, a long story shorter, she's been with us for seven years, and she spends at least a third of her time lecturing to social workers that they all have people like her in the street with 100% emotional disabilities, addicts. And she's there to remind them that they all have hope and they all should have a chance to rehabilitate. It doesn't matter how many years have gone by. And just to hear her talk with, with no shame about what she had to go through to life because there was no one there to reach out a hand until her children did. And isn't that like, could you, could you imagine that? And she's been abroad since. She, she's been in touch with her grandchildren. She's not drinking anymore. She's obviously not a prostitute. She's the best on her team. And it's such an amazing story. And to see that woman stand there and tell you it, just, you know, is so there's so many underdog stories that fill me, fill me with, with much more than, than passion and, 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 and joy. And they just fill me emotionally. And, and we have so many of them. We have hundreds of employees. Most of them have this most amazing stories. This makes me uh, so appreciative of what I've got. And I've got nothing to complain it does. about. When all these other people like have been through far worse and yet look what they're doing now. So there's also that redemption story at the same time. And there is still hope as well for these people. Do you share many of these stories in your book? Many. Uh, I wanted the book. I, I wrote the book because we have this amazing model and I discovered it's the only one out there. The whole world has thousands of models of how to prepare people who haven't worked for a while to join the workforce. There's not one that comprehensive model saying what the businesses have to do to enable to, to make it easier to people 
to actually join the workforce. People have been out of a job for a while. There's no such models. And we have a whole playbook on how to do everything differently so these kinds of populations can successfully join the workplace, regular pay, regular productivity. And I wanted to get the playbook out there, but it's a playbook. I have to have it interesting. Yeah. So to make it interesting, um, it's only it's only about a third of the book, but to make it interesting, there's an awful lot of employee stories as you go along. Um, there are an awful lot of um, aggravating facts that I did an awful lot of research to find just to keep people upset enough to keep on reading to see how we solve these problems. I'll give you one example. Um my wife really likes this one, or like is not the right word. They are in, in the global 500, and we're, we're 2022, right? The global 500 has more senior executives named John than women. And it's 2022. And most of those companies hold these amazing symposiums about the power of gender and equality. You all have DE and I offices, right? 78 of the largest companies in America haven't even had a gender parity audit in the past five years. There's an awful lot that needs to change. So a lot of the first part of the book is why our diversity efforts really need to be different than what they currently are. We're just overlooking in the reports as well. We're overlooking so many substantial groups that nobody's paying attention to. And everybody has work worker shortages. I mean, you hear about Amazon having worker shortages, warehouse shortages. You hear um, that Europe is having problems because there are not enough gas drivers, truck drivers. To, to, If I'm not mistaken, there are millions of Syrians and Africans, immigrants, dying to join the mainstream in Europe. I'm sure we could find a few truck drivers amongst them. There are 10%, maybe 10% of the adults in America are ex-cons. It's, it's, it's silly, 10%. It's not, no country is close to it. But they don't have a job afterwards because they're ex-cons. They're, they're, they're so much more unemployed than other people. But yet huge companies are having these warehouse employee shortages. And I I don't I don't get it. Right? Here they are. They've paid their the ex, they've paid their debt. Debt, paid it, no debt. Yeah. Right? Why aren't they working? Why aren't we employing them? Why aren't we training immigrants to be gas drivers or truck drivers or whatever? They're out there, we just don't look at them. And this book is here, so we look at them and we realize that they are our future. With the great resignation, there are so many groups dying to join. And the minute we enable them and we let them and we help them join successfully, they will be so wonderful as employees because that's what we have. We have the most engaged team ever, doing better than anybody because we, they've been given a chance and, and they've been given a life. And it's amazing. I think most... Companies and it's very similar to what's going on in Australia as well. Like we've got plenty of work available, we just can't find any of the workers. And that a lot of that's due to COVID nineteen and the restrictions that happened revolving around that and the whole political issues, like you were talking about before, which is just it's null and void these days. It shouldn't shouldn't really be the case. And then also when you've got criminals. When, when people see it on, on their record, they're like, well, I can't trust you. You've got a criminal record. Why? I've done the time. I've been released for a reason. Like, I can work. I'm available to work. Give me a chance. Let me prove myself. Yeah. But, yeah, not a lot of people are willing to give someone a second chance, right? Like, it's just a bit of a – it's it's wrong, in my opinion. And I think 
in your opinion, too, by the sound it's of it. It's stupid. It's not only wrong. I, we had the equivalent of Israel's Madoff. Israel has like a like a Madoff. She closed the bank. She worked with us for five years. She was promoted three times. I trusted her completely. She started working while she was still in prison. She went to prison for nearly 20 years. She started working with us when she was still in prison. She did a make People are people. I don't know that many people who want who feel that they're terrible people and want to maintain that. I mean, people want to be loved, cared for, and feel good about themselves. Everybody does. You just have to provide them the opportunity, and nearly all of them will take it. And maybe a few of them won't, but I'm not going to stop what I'm doing because if a few rotten apples, I'm not going to close my gates to a wonderful group. You have so many ex-cons and people who are currently in prison working for us, and they're doing amazingly well. We've never had any problems. People in for manslaughter and for whatever you want to think, none of them, I wouldn't take anybody in for a voluntarily violent crime, right? But if someone drunk drove and and hit someone, then, you know, and they want to rehabilitate their lives, I'll be there. And we have the most engaged workforce. It's everybody's missing out on these wonderful opportunities when they need them the most. And the book is out there to to, to bridge that gap, to enable people to see that there's so many underdogs out there, which will be your best employees ever. You just need to give them a chance and you need to change a bit what you're doing in order for them to, to successfully use that chance. It's an important message and I'm glad that you're, you're trying your very best to spread it. Where can people get a copy of your book, Gil? Pretty much anywhere. Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. It's called Winning with Underdogs. It's available in Kindle, uh, audio, um, and, uh, and in hardcover. Um, if you buy it and you enjoy it, please leave a review. And even more than that, if you know anybody with a disability or people who are looking to hire, show them that book because it'll also empower the people who are out of work and 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 are, you know, killing themselves over it and torturing themselves over it, and and they shouldn't. They're victims here, yeah. and um, and and hopefully it'll it'll create the change we want. Well, I hope so too. Thank you for writing this this book. I will share this episode far and wide so people can listen to it get a copy of your book and yeah i understand the leaving review section that's probably the hardest part in the whole thing is getting people to leave a review for your book (laughs) so i've read so many books and i've I've got to say i've 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 sinned with most of them i haven't even the ones i enjoyed i haven't you know the effort uh, of uh yeah of uh of leaving a review but it's important just to get to spread the word out there, there is something else I would like to ask if that's okay, Jay. Yeah, of course. Um, sure. I'm on LinkedIn. It's pretty much the only social platform I'm on, but I'm on LinkedIn. And what's been happening is lots of people from around the world have been contacting me and putting me in touch with these unknown uh, underdog stories or efforts or projects going on. And, and they're wonderful ones. And I'm trying to put together big enough collection so I can actually do something with it, like get it on the air somewhere because there's so many wonderful ideas that when you hear of, you go, oh, that's that's cute. Uh, oh, I didn't, that's, that's nice. Yeah. And it could get an awful lot of other people employed if there are any people who know about cute stories that found a way to employ people who weren't employed before, they don't have to be disabled. From any group doing anything with any creative way, please reach out on LinkedIn. Um, I'll get back to you and I'd love to hear and I'd love to be 
in touch with them. Some people are doing amazing things out there that nobody knows about. And I think it would inspire so much, you know, if, uh, if, if people did know. Um, well, I'll make sure everything is linked in the show notes to make it pretty much easy for people. Gil's yeah. brother, Guy, funny thing, I reached out to Guy a long time ago asking him to come on the show. Probably didn't see the email until it was too late. And then I get an email one day and he was basically sharing what you're doing. And I was like, 100% got to have him on. Uh, and I'm glad that we had this conversation finally, Gil. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we did too. I'm glad we did too. I really, really did enjoy it. Um, and you're welcome back again. And all I want to do is basically listen to all these stories. Like you can just share as many stories as you want. I think that would be a, a very different episode, but a great episode nonetheless, in my opinion. So if you're um, up for it. <laughs> I'm totally up for it. And there are, you know, 15% of the world is disabled. That's about 1 million people, but they have, many of them have family and friends. You're talking about a a large chunk of the world population. And if you're a parent of someone with Down syndrome or on the autistic uh, uh, spectrum, not functioning that well, it impacts the life of so many people around you. And especially when they reach the age of 19, 20, 21, and everybody leaves home and they don't, it it has it has bad effects on everyone and and to hear that there are many jobs that people with intellectual disabilities can do for regular pay and they do well because there are a few pl- places that have figured it out and we can learn from them or people on the autistic uh, spectrum that they can do really well there's pretty much anybody out of a job that you can find unless they're institutionalized something they can do for regular productivity and regular pay and there's somewhere in the world that they're actually doing it and and i think putting all those together would be inspiring and bring so much hope to so many people who who, who need that hope totally agree with you there this is my Final question for you, Gil. This is my all-time favorite question. I love asking all my guests at the very end. It is a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Then ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able mm-hmm. to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Um, I'll, I'll give you two short answers. The first one is I would love at my 100th birthday, which is about 40 years away, and I plan to be around, um, coherently around. But um, I would love them to say, wow, when you started out, this was the state of affairs in the world regarding underdogs. And you've turned underdogs into a sexy, well, I don't have, it doesn't have to be me, but nowadays underdogs are a sexy, popular word. They all have a job. In fact, they have an important place amongst us. They're, uh, the word underdog is used just in humor because they're not, and not considered such anymore. And wow, look at the wonderful transition we've gone through. That would be like the most amazing thing because it would mean that the amount of human suffering that's been, you know, alleviated and, and and lessened in the world is 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 like mind-boggling so that would be of course my my number one if they would have to show like a short video 
there was one short video I would like them to show at my 100th birthday, but it's a stupid one and it's got nothing to do with. Just a couple of years ago, I was walking down the street and this dog tried to get out of its gate and it broke something on the way. So it was, it had a sharp object protruding into its stomach, but the whole of its weight was forward and it was slowly getting impaled on the on that object. And it was raining and it was a, an attack dog. It was a Melanois. Uh, a, a Belgian Shepherd, and they're they're attack dogs. They're very they're not you know happy when you approach them. And he was dying on that thing, and there was no one home, and it was raining. I just got under the dog, hoping he's not going to bite my neck off, and kept him above that thing sticking into his stomach for about thirty minutes until a car came by, saw us, and and called someone. And then a municipality sent someone over. They had to cut the gate. And and in order to free that dog, and he was getting like the the, the the cutting things were getting freaked out. So I had to like cover him while he was getting cut. My hair, my hair got burnt. I saved the dog. I saved the dog. And that made me, I never actually saved some, someone's life before, but I saved this dog's life. It made me very, very happy and proud. Every time I pass by the dog box at me, by the way, no recollection whatsoever, but it's one of those things that, Stay with me, and I'm happy and proud of that. I managed. I could. I could save that dog's life. Well, I've just got more and more respect for you, Gil, as a result because I'm a huge dog lover. I've got. I've had three German shepherds. So, mm. yeah, I know <laughs> what were you talking about, especially when you. I had to like our last German shepherd that died in 2019 going back and forth to the vets and almost losing her it's but then when you get to save her life and all that sort of stuff it's like a huge relief and just boosts you up a little bit so i know what you mean about that and i also think that that dog still remembers you you may not think that it it does but it i i think it does and because dogs never forget believe it or not they they yeah. just they're, they're special creatures especially german shepherds in my opinion yeah. But um, anyway, Gil, thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, your advice, and your stories, and for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Thank you so much. Uh, I had a lovely time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.